Hi, welcome to Your Great Story, where we chat with entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders who live by passion and perseverance to make the future a reality. Let's be inspired by the stories as you create your great story. A very warm welcome to Your Great Story podcast. This is the special Earth Day episode where we are going to chat about sustainability and PropTech. Our guest today is a very successful entrepreneur in the PropTech space, and he is investing in sustainability startups in recent years. I'm going to take a quick pause here and welcome our distinguished guest, Steve Melhuish. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Hi, everybody. And uh, happy Earth Day today. Awesome. Awesome. I am extremely honored to have you on the show, Steve. Personally, I am very excited to have you with us today for two reasons. First, I am really impressed by how you bring Property Guru from zero to one, changing the whole property discovery experience from circling property listings using markers and pens on the newspapers like how my parents did it 20 years ago, to a top-notch property portal today that you just brought it public, which we're going to touch on in a while. Second, from PropTech to CleanTech, I'm really curious about your passion and sustainability and social impact, which we're going to deep dive today during this episode. So before we start off, we know that you're pretty well known in the world of tech and startups and also sustainability space. There are listeners out there who would like to know you more. So do you mind giving a quick introduction about yourself? Yes, sure. So um, I was born in the UK. That was in the army. So we moved around every two years. And so uh, uh, new school, new home, new friends every two years, which uh, was an interesting, interesting life. And I blame that on my really bad school results. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, on some level, it's it kind of that kind of helped me to to make friends quickly, adapt to circumstances. I'm, but I'm sure it also had some kind of deep emotional scarring as well, somewhere in there as well. Mm. Then uh, I spent uh, just under 10 years of my early career in telecoms, just as telecoms was shows how old I am. But uh, in the 90s to the 2000s, when the whole of the Internet boom was happening, telecoms was innovating, you know, we had moved to like fiber optics and voice over IP and the launch of, you know, GSM and mobile and mobile data. And it all kind of course internet, right? And so I had a great 10 years of, you know, going from, you know, monopoly environments to, you know, to the new markets that are liberalizing and, you know, working in very sort of gray regulatory environments and being very innovative, you know, playing around with all these new technologies and building businesses in these technologies and working with mobile companies, internet companies, and content companies. And, uh, and that's where I got the kind of internet bug, decided to then, you know, build my first startup, which was helping corporates to innovate around, you know, uh, around internet and also working with, you know, predominantly internet startups and helping them with fundraising strategy. And uh, did that for a while, went traveling for six months around Southeast Asia, fell in love with Asia, somehow ended up in Singapore. <laughs> where I invested in and then ran another startup, which is a mobile content startup. And then 2007 started Property Guru. And uh, that was really out of personal frustration. You talked just now about, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the interesting you know, observations of your, your parents with uh, newspapers. And, and, and that was my observation as well. But it was also yeah. just trying to find property as, as a fairly new person in Singapore who had been used to doing everything online, right? So shopping and travel and yes. everything, and, you know. In Europe, everything was online. And then coming to Singapore, it felt like a big step backwards where, you know, everything was in a newspaper still. And um, it was a hugely frustrating process trying to find property. And that's kind of why and how I started Property Guru, basically. 
Wow, that is a really inspiring story. You're really solving the root of the problems. Yeah, yeah, it was personal frustration and just uh, yeah, no, no, no information. You know, I mean, you get you know three lines of text in a newspaper, right? It was uh, Villa Marina telephone number, and that was about it. You know, no photographs, no videos, no pricing, no map, no floor plans, nothing, right? And uh, you know, for me, I was renting at that point, but you know, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of people who are buying or investing. If you're spending half a million dollars or a million dollars on a property and you don't have information at your fingertips and it's going to be the single biggest investment you ever make, but you don't have any data or anything to be able to make a decision, then that's hugely frustrating and scary, right? And so what we set out to do then is to empower the consumer to help them make confident property decisions. But it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, retrospect and at the time, I guess, also just a, a daunting task because mm. everything was offline. You know, all the agents were advertising in newspapers, all the property developers were advertising in newspapers, all of the property seekers were in the newspapers. And we yep. come along with this thing called the internet and say, well, now you can find your property online. And uh, we had a lot of skepticism and also big, you know, media companies like SBH and MediaCorp, mm. you know, who were, I guess, trying to do their own thing. And we were trying to disrupt what they were doing. And, uh, it was uh, a little bit scary and a bit daunting. And for some reason, we uh, had this self-belief that we could kind of make the world a better place by <laughs> by moving this process online. And uh, yeah, and that, that was a kind of a oh, like 14-year journey, I guess, to, to, to today, I guess. 50 million people every month now using, using property guru services, you know, looking for, for, for their property to buy or rent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, speaking of this journey of 14 years, I mean, from... Day one, right, to this year, you know, with the big news in March, right? So big congratulations on the public listing of PGRU in March. So it's definitely not easy to bring a company from scratch, right? Like I mentioned, from zero to one, right, to bring it public. Yeah. So share with us with those challenges, right? Just going one level deep to that, what you mentioned with different forces coming in, right? Competitors coming in. What is the journey like from founding PG from day one to picking, making it public? Yeah. Okay, I guess there's kind of, you could probably break the the business into kind of three main phases. I guess the first one was really kind of, you know, the bootstrapping and proving the concept stage. Yep. And the second stage was really, you know, growth to internationalization stage. And then the third stage was like kind of professionalizing to enable the next stage of scaling. And so there's kind of three stages of growing up, you know, from being a baby to a... Uh, yep. To maybe like a teenager to more of an adult, I guess. And um, so in the early days, you know, a lot of the challenges were, you know, associated with the fact that, look, startups were not the in thing then. Mm-hmm. The trying to attract talent was very hard. You know, we didn't have an office. We didn't have a brand. We had no money. We just put our own money in, $300,000 of our own money into the business. We were not taking a salary. You know, we didn't really have a service that worked yet. It was untested, it was unproven. And trying to get people to come and join us on this dream and journey of trying to transform this, this is this uh, real estate way of doing things which had stayed like that for the last 50, 60 years, hadn't changed, and in the future it's going to look very different, was very, very hard. Um, so that was, that was kind of one of the hardest things. You know, Raising money was hard because there was no VC industry in those days in Singapore. Mm. You had a bunch of angel investors and you had a bunch of private equity companies, but nothing in between to, to raise money. The things like, you know, co-working spaces, you know, founder friendly or startup friendly lawyers, counting firms, you know, co-working spaces, 
cloud services, none of that kind of existed. Yeah. So the cost of actually setting up the company was a lot higher. Mm. And so we had challenges getting staff. We had challenges paying staff. We didn't have the money or the brand, you know, and, and also trying to get things done. And we had to kind of do it on the, on the cheap. So, you know, cut a lot of corners, made a lot of mistakes. I, I think I learned more mm. in those first two or three years of probably good than I probably learned in the 10 years of, of corporate life, I think. Mm. It was, uh, you know, every day you kind of, there's no, there's no rule book to building Property Guru or any other startup. So um, you're kind of making things up as you go along. Yeah. As a result of that, you're going to make a ton of mistakes. And we made a ton of mistakes. You know, we, we hired badly. You know, we, we experimented on a lot of things, probably too much and spread the company very thin. You know, so at different stages of the company, I think that we, you know, we, we, we made a lot of mistakes and we made a lot of learning, you know. Um, we compromised a little bit around our values in terms of hiring people. We had a country manager in Malaysia, for example, you know, who was siphoning money off to this marketing agency, which is run by his wife. Oh, um, we had a country manager in Indonesia who was working for us as well as for another company at exactly the same time. We had an alcoholic country manager <laughs> in Thailand. Oh, um, and so, yeah, so uh, some interesting characters. Interesting. We had two of our sales guys at one stage had 80% of the revenue under their belt. And um, they both came to us and said, we're going to double our salary or we leave to go and work for a competitor. And that was in the middle of our first big fundraise process where we were raising $55 million. And so what do you do in that situation when you're held to ransom? You know, um, mm. you know, Do you follow your core values? And basically, if your core values would normally say you'd fire those people and let them go. But the practicalities of this were we didn't want 80% of our revenue walking out the door, so we had to kind of compromise a little bit. So we, we kept one let the other one go. And then over very quickly, we kind of built a team around that person. So it wasn't all the power sitting with one pair of hands. But uh, you have to learn some of these things as you go, right? Mm. And, and that's, you know, when you're kind of bootstrapping and building things as you go, you, you know, you, you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. So, so the first four or five years was pretty intense. And, you know, then we, having sort of built a really strong business in Singapore, we then sort of expanded into new markets, we went from one country to four countries in four months, which was a big mistake. <laughs> and uh, yeah. ended up stretching the whole company almost a breaking point because the whole of the organization was focused on Singapore. And then we're saying, oh, launch a website in Indonesia, <laughs> Malaysia, Thailand, multiple languages, yeah. mobile as well as web, consumer versus agent, pricing, hiring, marketing yeah. program, you know, all at the same time. So, of course, all the people in Singapore got stretched because they were focused on other things. And then, of course... We ended up, instead of having one technology platform, we had enough, like four different technology platforms. And then, of course, you're fixing bugs on one, and then you had to fix the bugs on the other one. And suddenly, oh, we had all yeah. this kind of what they call legacy platform, which required a lot of uh, extra, <laughs> like extra work. So then rebuild that and put it onto one code base again. So, yeah, so, so lots, lots of challenges there. And then, you know, the last maybe four or five years have been very much around, you know, building a little bit more resilience in the organization and building leadership team and the middle management team, you know, putting in place, you know, HR systems, finance systems, ERP systems, you know, CRM systems, which can then underpin and support the growth of the company, you know, hiring and building our CXO level as well as our middle management level, yeah. you know, and then thinking about, you know, talent acquisition, retention, training, development, and being a lot more systematic and professional about how we run the company, building the board, so it's a proper proper board with you know uh, half of the board members being you know independent uh, with an independent chairman. So we really 
got proper strict governance and risk and compliance, you know, management as well, which which obviously enables us to be able to then think about things like, you know, raising, you know, $100 million from one company or a private equity company like TPG or KKR. So we raised, you know, two or $300 million from them and then also enable us to then go public, as you said, on the New York Stock Exchange last month at a $2 billion valuation. So an interesting, crazy journey. I learned a lot. It was scary, stressful, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, just hugely enjoyable and um, probably most importantly, most, you know, just, just learning a lot. Wow. That is a real, yeah. real, real journey of zero to one, like literally zero to one. Thank you for sharing that with the audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, when you, you've got to start off with two people and you end up with 1,500 people and you start off with one country and <laughs> five countries. And uh, yeah, yeah, we, it sort of uh, completely exceeded our expectations, but you know, I, I reflect, you know, fondly back on, you know, what we've built over the last 14 years. And uh, the, the biggest thing is, right. you know, it's been one big team effort. It is. It the, is. the gurus who have helped build Property Guru to what it is today is the reason why we're here today. Yep. And so the talent and the gurus and the passion yep. inside the company, building the company, I've been, yep. you know, just truly, truly blessed that we have just a fantastic team yep. building the organization. So that's the most yep. important thing. Yeah, I can testify, right? You know, the culture there is really great. Like everybody's creating what's next, right? And really yeah. above and beyond. Um, and I think a lot of uh, issues kind of come from scaling up. A lot of challenges come yeah. from, right? And hiring the right people, right? So just like you mentioned, you hire, hire, you know, culture managers who are drunkers and stuff. So um, <laughs> a, question, a question is how do you hire the right people to scale the company in the right direction? I think reflecting on the journey, um, mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, different people for different stages of the organization, right? And so, you know, some of the people who were involved in initially building the organization weren't necessarily the right people to then take the business to the next level. And um, some people did. Some people were able to stretch and evolve and develop. But, you know, I, I, I recall, you know, when we started to, you know, roughly, I think 2012, 2013 is when we really started to invest heavily in the leadership team. And, 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 and I guess in many cases kind of upskill a little bit. We then had a big clash of cultures between some of the people who are more f- maybe family orientated, you know, yeah. built, the, built a very strong passion for the organization and, you know, been there from the early days and seen it scale and, you know, really super committed, super passionate. Um, as long, along with some, maybe some more corporate people who brought tremendous experience. Yeah. And sometimes that didn't work. And we had a bit of a sort of, uh, sort of a clash of cultures. And so I think having the right people for the right stage of the organization is perhaps one thing mm. to reflect on. I think the other thing is, you know, you get better at it as time goes on and your ability to hire the best people improves as time goes on. So if I, as I mentioned just now, you know, building it from scratch when you have no money, no office, no brand, no products and services, and, you know, there's perhaps less interest to go and work for a startup versus now more people are wanting to go and work for a startup. Yeah. And and now you know we have a we have a strong brand you know uh, we have it's a large organization it's a very stable it's growing nicely it's yep. nicely you know profitable at the EBITDA level you know you they have more ability to pay hire the best talent training development you know wellness benefits insurance you know so you then have the ability to more ammunition yes at your disposal. To then hire the best talent, but of course you've got to put people through a rigorous process, and so mm. you know putting people through you know a few rounds of interviews and panel interviews to make sure that you're finding the right people with the right values, you know, so that you as much as possible you're hiring A or B players 
who are, you know, have the right attitude, but also, you know, have the ability to kind of develop and contribute as well. So I think um, talent, if you ask any startup, you know, talent will be the constant yep. for different reasons. And I think, you know, today there's a massive war on talent, mm. whereas, you know, 12, 13 years ago, it wasn't so much of a war on talent, but it was actually very hard to find people for all the reasons I mentioned. So mm. it's it, the environment has for, 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 for sure changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way in which we've kind of compensated around that is to maybe to diversify slightly, you know, so rather than having, you know, the whole, for example, our, all of our product and tech team in Singapore, we then expanded to Thailand. And we have a product mm. tech team now in Malaysia, in Vietnam, and remote working product and tech, as well as a development center in India. And so we have diversity, I think, in our talent approach as well, yep. which has kind of helped us, enable us to grow as well. Nice. So I think you're right. I thought that kind of we learn as we grow, right? Along the way, right? And challenges at the initial phases is definitely something that you have to overcome and you get better, right? Yeah. Let's take a few steps back and fly to 2016, right? Uh, I realize it's hard for founders to pass that CEO leadership, you know, to somebody else that, that uh, Baton. Uh, having lead in company after 10 years, right? What went through your mind when you passed the PG leadership Baton in 2016, September? What are the main reasons? Yeah, so for me, at least, building the business in the first 10 years when we had to go from zero to one and then scaling and multiple countries and, and then start the professionalization, thing, it was, uh, you know, throwing everything in. It was, you know, it took a lot of my energy and time. So I was working seven days a week for most of that. You know, it was 12, 14 hour days for most of that. Traveling, you know, particularly towards the end, you know, a lot, you know, it was 48 times into Malaysia in one year. You know, so there's a lot of sacrifice which I did willingly because it's a great business to build. But at the same time, you know, my kids uh, have twins. Um, I'm an old dad. So cute. <laughs> but they were three. And I hadn't really seen them for the first three years of their life. And I one day woke up and got uh, had a bit of a wake up uh, where I thought, okay, well, the kids probably want to hang around with their parents till they're maybe 11 or 12 or 13 before we start to be less cool and uh, <laughs> don't want to hang around with us anymore. So I, 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 I had a bit of a worry that actually I'm going to miss spending time and seeing them grow up and being part of their life while they want to be with us. So that suddenly then became the, the guiding light. And so over a period of about almost three years, you know, my partner and I, you know, we persuaded the board that we should think about succession plan because all leaders should think about succession plan. We said, look, well, we, yes. same with the co-founders, right? Uh, yes. We should do this for sure. Um, and we agreed a plan. And the plan was very much around building the leadership team, diversifying the company so it wasn't so reliant on Singapore and Singapore agents, professionalize the organization, and then lastly, to find a CEO and, 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 and do a very orderly managed transition process. And so that's what we did. And so by 2018, January 2018, you know, I'd, I'd basically handed over all of the day-to-day operations. And so practically, that was the main driver and that was the thought process. And it was, you know, that was the driver for me in a, why I wanted to do that. The actual process of doing it was very, very hard, uh, mm. and I underestimated it. Even though I had spoken to a number of founders that had gone through this process, maybe they'd exited their company or they had had a trade sale or, mm. you know, maybe for health reasons, they'd kind of handed over. I'd sat down with a number of these founders, CEOs, and to understand what process they'd gone through. And quite interesting, a lot of them had some strong emotions, like uh, a sense of loss, a sense of lack of direction, lack of confidence, yeah. crisis of confidence, uh, a period of mourning, a period of anger, a period of frustration, etc. 
whilst I, I heard that, I didn't really absorb that until it was my turn. And then I went through the same process. Uh, I, I, you know, it was, uh, I, I had to go through a period of about 12 months of battling inner demons because it was head versus heart. You know, I, I, I knew why I'd started this succession process. I know why, why I wanted to make it happen. But at the same time, letting go of your baby after 10 years is also a very, very hard thing to do. And I remember the conversation with my wife and she said, look, you've achieved everything you wanted to achieve and uh, you, sh- you, uh, you should be the happiest you should be, but you're the saddest you've e- I've ever known you. Um, so why don't you take the CEO role back? And I said, I don't think I want to. <laughs> and she said, well, stop moaning about it then and get on with it. And so I, I did go through a period of depression and, and, and struggled with those, those demons a little bit. And, but I came out the other end probably, you know, 18 months later to really understand what I want to spend my time on next, as you know, is, uh, is around climate change and social impact. So, yeah, I'm in a very, very fortunate position to, you know, we had a very smooth transition process. You know, Harry and the team have done an absolutely outstanding job, you know, in the last few years, taking the business, continuing the trajectory of the business during some tough times. You know, the last couple of years have been particularly tough with COVID. Yep. And so uh, I feel very blessed that we have a great team and be able to carry that momentum on. And also blessed that I've got, you know, time, money and health and energy to devote to what I want to spend my time on now, which is, um, you know, climate change and social impact. Cool. Yeah. Tell us more about the social impact and climate change. Yeah. So investing in sustainability space. Share with us, why are you so passionate about this space? Yeah. Um, maybe it won't come as a surprise, but I wanted to spend more time with my kids in 2018, mm. um, which, which I was able to do. But at the same time, almost every single newspaper article, you know, email, whatever, newsletter, whatever, was talking about this growing uh, threat of climate change in 2018. Mm. And it was the year that all the climate scientists came together in a consensus to say that climate change is happening and it's driven by human beings. It's actually a lot worse and could be a lot bigger and worse than we expect it to be. And it was the, you know, the, the year that I think records were broken in terms of extreme weather, I think about $300 billion of, of, of damage caused by extreme weather, which was attributed to climate change predominantly. It was the year that Greta went on a climate strike with the schools and also Larry Fink wrote his first letter to shareholders saying, look, in future, we're going to be moving money away from fossil fuel companies. And so it was a kind of a perfect storm because this kind of all was hitting their face. And the more I researched it, I listened to podcasts, I went, read white papers and research papers, I watched videos, and I went deep and deep into this. And very quickly, two things happened. One, I got very scared because actually... Mm-hmm. What was becoming very apparent was actually the whole process of climate change is accelerating. And whilst the impact to me in my life is probably not going to be too too bad, the impact to my kids as they get into their first careers, you know, in 20 or 30 year time is going to be extreme. Mm. The things I took for granted in terms of swimming in oceans, you know, walking through forests and seeing nature, seeing mm. snow and skiing or whatever that might be, they might not have that in the future. And that's really sad. And uh, not only that, but just the implications of, you know, impact on the economies, on, you know, the lower income and bottom of the pyramid. You know, you're going to have hundreds of millions of climate migrants, you know, mm. trying to trying to make a better life and escape the, mm. the extreme weather conditions in, in certain parts of the world. It's, it's a big thing. So I don't think there's anything, uh, there's nothing bigger in this world that needs to be fixed currently than climate change. Mm. Uh, it you know underpins everything else. You know, we talk about the UN SDGs. Um, if we don't have a stable 
planetary environment, you can, you can forget about the rest of the SDGs. And so I decided to devote my time to that. Um, I very quickly got overwhelmed, though, um, by mm. this thing, because, you know, you, you meet uh, people who have been studying the space, like climate scientists, for 25 years. And, uh, you know, what do I know about it? This person has been studying it for 25 years, you know, or long duration mm. storage, you know, battery technology. So there's a lot of technology and science involved mm. and lots of jargon involved. And so for a newbie in the space, you know, it can very quickly become quite overwhelming. Mm. I got very humble very quickly. And I was like, well, how can I possibly play a role in this? But what do I have? I have time, energy, passion, money. I know how to build businesses. So how do I apply all of that to this space? Mm. And as I researched, I realized that actually, you know, a lot of the climate change challenges in terms of emissions, for example, we can we can address today with existing technology and and business model innovation finance, and so actually that that lends itself very very well to a kind of a venture build mentality. So you know building a brand new venture, you know which requires you know software, quick scaling, quick adoption, and so um, yeah, so that that's kind of where I decided to then focus, and so I started to invest. You know the angel investing which I've been doing for about twenty years now. I started to then in twenty eighteen invest exclusively in climate and social impact. So invested in about 20 companies now in that space, mostly around Series A in Asia, addressing one part of the decarbonization challenge, you know, whether it's around the construction space or whether it's around food waste or whether it's around alternative protein. Yeah, so different parts of that, you know, value chain. So, yeah. And from there, I uh, realized actually doing this on my own is going to be, you know, how, how do I really shift the needle? How do I get, have an impact on climate change? Mm-hmm. And to do that at scale, you know, I, I'm going to have to kind of combine forces with other people. And uh, yeah. through a journey, you know, I kind of co-invested with another company, which was spun out of Engie, which is a renewable energy company. And two people there have been building ventures in the renewable energy space. And the company that I invested in, I brought into WaveMaker. Mm-hmm. And Waymaker invested. And through that, you know, four of us started talking about, well, how can we have a bigger impact on climate change? And so uh, that over a period of about 12 months ended up in uh, the launch of Wavemaker Impact, which is a, mm. you know, a clean tech venture build fund for Southeast Asia to target Southeast Asia climate change and emissions. And uh, yeah, we launched that in November. And um, it's like a startup fund targeting Southeast Asia emissions uh, with the backing of Singapore government and the UNDP. And um, we're in the process of doing that. We've done our first investment. We're doing building our first venture from scratch with a very experienced entrepreneur um, looking at our next investment and our next venture. And the thesis is take existing technology, adapt it to a particular use case to build scalable, fast-growing ventures with fast adoption built by ex- you know, experienced entrepreneurs. So we work mm-hmm. with, we know we're not a training program for entrepreneurs. We are, we work with entrepreneurs who built one or two or three businesses before and now want to do something in this space. And so we co-found and then launch a venture within six months. Wow. Lots to unpack. I think this is like worth like, you know, three or five episodes, right? Of social impact, climate change, sustainability. Let's talk about founders in this space, right? In this sustainability space, right? So what is the core difference between a, I would say classic, typical tech startup founders and social impact slash sustainability startup founders? Very little. I mean, the challenges of building a business from scratch are, are the same, whether you are building a business which is focused on fintech or whether you're focused on, on climate change. 
you know, you're trying to solve a real problem. In this case, you know, we're trying to reduce emissions or protect the carbon sinks. And using, you know, software predominantly to achieve fast adoption. So many of the challenges are the same, but I'd say that my lessons learned in the last perhaps three or four years working with some of the founders is perhaps a couple of differences, which, you know, um, have struck me. So one is a lot of the founders in this space are super passionate, quite rightly so, about addressing, you know, climate change or social impact. And to the point where that becomes the conversation. But if you put yourselves in the shoes of the consumer or the customer, let's say you are a you know a construction company or you are a real estate company or you are a factory, you don't. Most of those companies, unfortunately, today don't care. Mm. Uh, they have more pressing problems. They they're, they're worried about how do I get more customers? How do I increase my revenue? How do I grow faster? How do I improve productivity? How do I deliver my project faster? How do I reduce my costs? And so. Whilst sustainability is the outcome, in other other words, reducing emissions in our case, is the outcome, people are not buying sustainability. They're not buying climate change solutions on the whole. There are some, people like Amazon or Google or Mm -hmm. Facebook will will go out their way maybe to try and find more sustainable solutions. But 99.9% don't care really yet. Some of them are changing, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. So how do you turn your product or solution into a business conversation. What I spend a lot of my time on is working with the founders to try and change the conversation into a business conversation, which is how do you help the customer generate more revenue? How do you help the customer get more customers? How do you help the customer improve productivity, deliver the project three months faster? How do you help them reduce their cost or increase their margins? Mm. And so if you do that, then they're more likely to adopt the product. And particularly if it's a fast result. So I'll give you an example. One of the companies, the, that company I mentioned that we co-invested in, which started the right. whole Waymaker Impact, is a company called Table Pointer. And mm. Table Pointer is, um, is focused on energy efficiency. And on the face of it, no one's going to really buy energy efficiency. But what if you're an F&B outlet, which really cares about your costs and your bottom line and your margins, if you can increase those margins or reduce those costs by a few percentage points, it has a massive impact on the profitability of your F&B outlet. And so what this company does is it goes to these F&B outlets and says, look, you don't have to worry about it. We all install some kit, um, which is basically some hardware IoT sensors with a bit of software layer on top, which will monitor and then reduce your energy consumption by as much as 30%, which reduces your cost by 30%. Mm. So the F&B outlet can then focus on food and manpower, yeah. which they're probably the best at, and all the energy yeah. stuff and costs are taken away from them. And so immediately they get savings. Yeah. So they've been able to go from one customer to 10 100 are now sort of approaching a thousand customers with companies like a KFC, for example, and scaling super, super fast because the, the friction point and adoption point is very, very low. The business benefits are very, very clear. And so, you know, customers will go, okay, who's using you? Oh, you've got these hundred customers already. We're all my kind of peers already. Uh, okay, they must know, they must be using you for the right, for, for a good reason. Um, and so the benefits are very, very fast. And so, in a similar way, you know, one of the companies which we've um, invested now growing fast is a agri solar company, um, which is helping smallhold farmers to replace their diesel generators for irrigation mm. with a solar pump. So there's 18 million smallholder farmers using these diesel pumps for irrigation. Uh, if you use solar, then you can reduce your cost by 20 to 30%. So a farmer earning $400, $500 a month, if you can save 20% or 30% of their costs immediately by not having to buy diesel fuel 
for their irrigation because they're now using solar, then immediately goes to their bottom line. And then from then, you can start to think about, well, okay, rather than just the solar irrigation, can you improve the way that you do the irrigation so it reduces the amount of methane produced, but they get a better yield and therefore they're making more money? Mm. Can you reduce the food waste by thinking about cold storage in a renewable way? Can you move to biofertilizers so that mm-hmm. you're not using as much as chemical fertilizers like nitrogen and ammonia you know, within the fertilizer? So you can start mm-hmm. to then say, actually, this business can become a 100 megaton business. It can, it can mitigate 100 megatons of emissions, which as a reference point is about twice the size of Singapore, just by getting between 5 to 10% of some of these farmers to adopt this technology. And of course, the adoption rate is super fast because immediately they save 20, 30% of their costs. Mm-hmm. So it's a highly scalable venture. Yes. Anyway, so, so that's, that's, that's you asking. I've got a slightly off, off plan. <laughs> no worries. I'm, what, I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is that you know, these, these are you know, venture-grade, fast-growing companies yep. which are solving business problems using existing technology or adapting business models and finance, not rocket science. We're not talking about brand-new yep. nuclear technology or carbon capture technology, which yep. will have a role to play in yep. 10, 20, 30 years' time. But we haven't got that long. We've got 10 years to reduce emissions by 50%. So how do you do that? You have to do that with very, very fast adoption. And that's what we're working on. So that so first of all is like translating the sustainability conversation into a business conversation. Yes. The second challenge with the founders is access to working capital. So there is a whole bunch of VCs, angel investors, family offices, seed funds, you know, Series A funds, B2B, B2C, deep tech. There's a whole bunch of VC investors who are willing to invest equity capital on all ventures. But a lot of these ventures. The, the clean tech ones, as well as others, as well in the way, for example, the Waymaker portfolio, have some form of hardware component, which might be a commodity hardware. But there's a gap between I need to deploy this hardware and, and generate revenue. So there's a cash gap. Yes. So one of the things that slows the growth down of some of these companies is access to working capital. And um, mm. this is one of the challenges. You know, if you want to get, you know, half a million dollars venture debt from a company, from one of the venture debt providers in Singapore, there are players who do that. And the banks, not very good at servicing it, servicing this space, starting to do a little bit more around this space. If you want a hundred million dollars infrastructure project financing from a big infrastructure fund, there's people doing that as well. But if you want one, two, three, four, five million dollars working capital debt finance to accelerate your growth process as a venture, there's a gap there. So that's one of the areas which currently is keeping me awake at night and because that's one of the challenges that a lot of the founders I work with uh, face. Yeah. Yeah. So trying, trying to solve that problem at the moment. Awesome. I mean, passion is the thing that keep us awake at night. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. drive us, yeah. And keep us awake, make us awake in the morning, right? Have energy in the morning, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what I realized that you mentioned is that a product is a product, right? A tech is a tech, but how you package it to solve a problem from a business perspective is kind of the forming that equation, right? And solving that problem yeah. on the ground or for the factory or for that particular business to lower down the cost, to increase the margin yeah. and profitability, right? Exactly. So, Eric, I mean, you, you know this space well, you know, you know, building products, you know, is about, you know, is, is basically an entrepreneurial role, right? It's about yep. solving a business problem with a, you know, technology solution in this case. Yep. Yep. And so to solve that business problem, you need to really, really understand the business problem. Yep. And that's the area that we spend probably the most time at Wavemaker Impact on. Got it. Because, you know, again, we're not trying to... You know, there was no point talking to a factory around sustainability because, you know, the reality is if you're a small factory in Indonesia, you're not going to care about it today. And mm. quite rightly so. 
but they will care about their revenue and their cost and productivity and this kind of thing, and uptime and this kind of thing. So really sitting down with these customers, in this case, a factory, and saying, okay, what are your challenges? Why is this a problem? Why is your productivity not right? You know, why mm-hmm. is the cost high? Why are you not yep. getting the price you want? Why are you not delivering yep. the product you want? And yep. really, really understanding what their challenges are. And then trying yep. to think about, okay, well, how can we address that problem with a product or solution use, using existing technology or finance? Mm. Uh, so, yes, yeah, but it has to be a business problem. Otherwise, yes, customers it won't is. Buy it. And product market fit, right? Product market fit is, is, is key, right? How do your product fit to the market and solve the problem? Mm. Let's switch gears a little bit to founders looking for investment and probably emailing you or sending you LinkedIn messages. What are the common pitfalls for founders looking for investments? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I spend uh, probably about half of my time, roughly, um, with founders on fundraising. And so um, I think some of the pitfalls are, I think the first one is not running a proper process. Mm. You know, I, I believe that fundraising, I've raised, what, four, $400 million or so for, for my own startups, as well as investing my own money in startups. And so I, I, I kind of feel this is an area, and I've probably run about 20 processes already. So I've done it to death. And um, for me, you know, if you follow a process, you're going to end up with a better outcome. And it's, just, it's, it's a science. And, you know, you start off with step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. If you do it piecemeal, like you're trying to run your business and have a chat over here with an investor, have a chat over here with an investor, you haven't really got your story right. You haven't really got your pitch mm. right. You know, you haven't got the flow right. You're not thinking about who your ideal investor is. Then you're not going to end up with the best outcome. You know, you're going to end up with one term sheet, which is going to have some lousy terms in it, and you'll have no choice but to accept it. Whereas if you start the funnel wide and say, look, I'm going to target 30 investors, and I'm, but I'm only going to talk to, I'm not talking to a single one until I'm absolutely ready with my my story, my deck's really polished. Every single slide in my deck is reinforcing the main story. You know, thinking about what, you know, so what? what? If I put something on a slide, what's that telling me? And how's that reinforcing my story? What's my ideal investor? You know, if you're, let's say, you know, you want to scale from one country to four countries or 10 countries, having an investor who has worked with portfolio companies or startups have done all of that, or, you know, founders have done all of that, would be beneficial, right? Or you need yep. to build data science capability in your organization. Wouldn't it be great if you could work with investors who've got experience of that? Or you want to enter the US market. You know, Think about an investor who's got access to the US market. So start off with the intention of getting your ideal investor who can help you for the next you know, 18 to 24 months. In 18, 24 months, your top three priorities will be different. And then you kind of move on to the next top three priorities and think about your next investment round. And so, um, yes, I think the process is, 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 is one thing. And then only when you're ready, just going out and talk to everyone and, and keep everyone moving at exactly the same time. Um, so that, you know, you won't get in a position where you have one term sheet from one investor and nothing else. Hopefully you'll have some competitive tension and you'll have, you know, two or three or maybe four investors all interested in investing, which then means that you can negotiate, hopefully find your ideal investor and bring them in on the right terms. So I think that's the first one is that process. And, and I, you know, for me, that's the most important one, you know, because fundraisers that work well, follow processes. Fund processes that don't work well, generally don't follow a process. And I've seen the good and bad and ugly on that. Mm. So that would be the key one. Other than that, I think other ones are around being too fixated on valuation. I mean, I had a conversation yesterday with a startup uh, and, you know, throughout the pitch, you know, you kept talking about valuation. And on the last slide, you talked about what his valuation was. 
And I said to him, the valuations, you, you don't determine the valuation. The valuation can be determined by the investors. If you've got 20 investors all wanting to invest, valuation is going to be higher. The terms are going to be better. If you've got one, they're going to say, okay, the valuation is going to be half of that or quarter of that or 10% of that. What do you do? Do you take it or don't you take it? And so, you know, for me, getting the best investor is far more important than the valuation because the best investor can help grow faster and, and help you take you to the next stage. Rather than okay, I, I I'm fixated on it must be 20 million valuation by next round. You get 20 million valuation, you can, but the terms are going to be bad. And maybe your next round is at 15 million, which is a down round, and you have a big black mark against you. It's far better to go from five to ten, from ten to fifteen to twenty, twenty-five, right? And grow the business that way because as soon as you get that big down round, it's a big black mark, and then people don't want to touch you anymore. In a similar way with the fundraising process, if you're running your business and not do, paying attention to the fundraise process, it does require energy. But if you then spend 12 months doing a fundraising process, people can go, why is it taking you so long? You know, is something mm. fundamentally wrong with your business? Why are there no investors coming on board? Mm. So, you know, again, that's that, that, that process thing is absolutely critical. Yeah, we definitely want to go deeper into the process, probably in an episode for investing. Yeah, no, right? I'll be very happy to talk about that. I'm not, as I said, I spend about half my time on the process and also the deck flow and uh, Awesome. And then how to maximize the outcome for the for the founders. Yeah, we definitely want to pick that up from you. I'm preparing a series for investors to come about, right? Or on the passion of investing in startups, right? That really matters, right? They really change the world. Yeah. Wrapping up this episode, just last two questions to wrap up. First question of this is, what advice would you give to your younger self, say about 20 years ago? <laughs> uh, oh, that's a tough question. Um <laughs> I guess it took me a while to understand that what I was good at doing and what I really enjoyed doing was entrepreneurship. So my 10 years in corporate life, I was building brand new businesses. I was building a voiceover IP business. I was building, you know, uh, a triple play business, which is like cable TV and voiceover IP and internet and broadband all wrapped up, mobile business, a content business within a corporate. So I was, I was doing like corporate innovation. It wasn't until I sat down with a, you know, with a, career coach and really spent 12 weeks trying to analyze my skills, my passions, my interests, and all the stuff I've been good at doing. And I realized actually is so obvious that, you know, it's basically being an entrepreneur. Um, and I was being an entrepreneur in a corporate. And so I think we should come to conclusion a little bit earlier around that. I think the other one would be to, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And, you know, throughout the businesses I've built, I've, tended to try to do too much at the same time and stretch things too much because you know if you work in seven days a week 12 40 hours days oh you can do everything right you, yeah. you know you, oh, let's experiment over here let's build a business over here let's try that or oh, it's an opportunity over here let's go after that mm-hmm. whereas you know focusing on one or two key things and doing them really 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 well it, 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 you know is um is, is, an, is an important lesson i think so those are probably those two things I, I would probably advise myself to be a little bit more focused around priorities and uh, focusing on the core, core problem rather than trying to do stuff, core problem and, and everything else at the same time. You know, rather than go one country to four countries, four months, go one country, <laughs> choose the next one in a, in a systematic way, do it yep. well, go to the next yep. one, do it well. Because in reality, you know, whilst you think, you know, things are moving super, super fast and you think competition is going to come in, yep. it takes longer. Um, you know, to build a business and to build yep. a strong business. And had we waited two or three years to go into a new country, we wouldn't have missed out on that much. And we would have had a lot less stressful organization hmm. and uh, put a lot less pressure on people. 
and uh, and that sort of thing. So I think you know, just uh, yeah, th- those are the two lessons I think. Yeah, I think great point on spreading too thin and really progressively focusing and going deeper, deeper in the markets, for example. And um, it's you're right, it's it's a marathon, it's not sprint, right? And focus on what's yeah, yeah. important, right? And prioritize, right? Last question, given that this is an Earth Day special episode, what is your vision of the Earth in 20 years? Oh, uh, I sincerely hope we hit our um, our 1.5 degrees target, although that's looking increasingly uh, less achievable. (laughs) Mm. But yeah, just just what I would love to see in 20 years' time is that actually governments, enterprises, SMEs, consumers, you know, globally really, really uh, stood up and took action. And, and and to be frank, that might mean taking some compromises. So, yeah, that would be my dream that we, you know, we're able to, you know, get to the point where we can reduce those emissions by 50% in the next 10 years and then start to half it again in the following 10 years. That means we're on the path to 1.5 or 2 degrees. That, for me, is an amazing outcome if we can get to that. And we have to get to that. Otherwise, you know, to be honest, we're all screwed. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I would encourage everyone to play their part mm-hmm. and i used to think that maybe consumers didn't have a role to play and you know consumers don't really shift the needle too much and you know not using a plastic straw you know it's not going to really change the world and that's true but at the same time we have a lot of power you know mm-hmm. consumers have money they yep. choose which companies to work for so do you want to work for a fossil fuel oil company or do you want to work for companies solving climate change rather than burning the planet do i want to vote for the right government, which is really serious about climate change? Do I want to invest my money in companies which are burning the planet or actually trying to, trying to fix climate change? Do I, uh, you know, do you want to work with customers or suppliers mm-hmm. who don't care about sustainability? Uh, so you have a role to play as an employee, as an investor, as a voter, mm-hmm. as an advocate, changing some things in your life. You know, if all of us, move to a, you know, cut our meat consumption by 50%, it would have a massive impact on, on, on not just uh, deforestation, not just on animal welfare, on water consumption, energy consumption, and also methane production. You know, so there's some things we can do as consumers. And so, yeah, let's um, hopefully act. And if anyone's interested, founders are interested in uh, exploring uh, climate change, clean tech, sustainability, um, my door is always open and I, I, I will make time for people who really want to do something serious in this space. I'm very, very happy to talk to anyone who wants to to talk about it. Awesome. Our listeners definitely will be very keen to reach out to you. How do they reach out to you, Steve? They can reach out and probably the easiest way is around LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. You know, LinkedIn, Steve, Steve Mel is my LinkedIn handle. Nice, nice. So yeah, that's probably the easiest way of doing it. Awesome. That is a wrap. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and the listeners. It is a joy to have you on this show, Steve. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. Thank you. Bye. Bye.